The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Mostly cold. Okay, <coughs> everyone, so welcome back again. Uh, and uh, we're going to carry on, obviously, with the um, taking up of arms, uh, Sutta from the Sutta Nipata. Uh, and uh, so far we have looked at the uh, Buddha to be acquiring, if you like, the right view or looking at the world in the right way. And uh, as a consequence of that, you can expect that he starts practicing in the right way, because right view, once again, is obviously the foundation for all the practice. So I'll have a quick look at the uh, practice itself. And because it is in verse form, it's a bit different from how you normally might see it. So, you know, what verse is like, verse is more inspirational, whereas prose, ordinary straightforward prose, is more kind of precise in the way it describes things. So verse is always meant to be inspirational, and therefore it's a bit more, um, not as precise or uh, as uh, structured, if you like, uh, as the prose parts. Uh, um, the practice itself is also an aspect of right view. You know, Four Noble Truths is the uh, uh, understanding the Four Noble Truths, is the definition of right view in many places in the suttas. Uh, so understanding the practice is also an aspect of this. Uh, so uh, you know the practice, and so even just reading about it already uh, does something to your right view. Uh, and then at the very end of the sutta, we come to the um, ideal of the arahant, the fully awakened person, uh, and it describes the arahant in kind of poetic form. Uh, and that also, everything can really be considered an aspect of right view. <laughs> so there is, uh, so which is kind of, uh, you can't really get away from right view, I suppose. You can argue that the, all the suttas and all the vinaya and all there is in scriptures is really just a large collection of right view. Uh, some of it more right view in pure form, other ones, other aspects more like the uh, pragmatic path. Anyway, let's see what it has to say. So um, then comes the, uh, I'll just read through the whole thing first of all, and then we can analyze it a bit in detail afterwards. So. Whatever attachments there are in the world, uh, don't pursue them. Uh, having pierced through sensual pleasures in every way, uh, train yourself for quenching. Uh, be truthful, not rude, uh, free of deceit and rid of slander. Uh, without anger, a sage would cross over the evils of greed and avarice. Uh, prevail over sleepiness, sleepiness, sloth and torpor, drowsiness rather, don't abide in negligence. Uh, a person intent on quenching uh, would not stand for arrogance. Uh, don't be led uh, into lying or get caught up in fondness for form. Uh, completely understand conceit uh, and desist from hasty conduct. Don't rel relish the old or welcome the new. Uh, don't grieve for what is running out uh, or get attached to things that pull you in. Uh, Greed, I say, is the great flood, uh, and longing is the current, uh, the base is the compulsion, the swamp of sensuality so hard to pass. A sage never strays from the truth, uh, a Brahmin stands firm on the shore, uh, having given up everything, uh, they are said to be at peace. They have truly known their knowledge master, uh, understanding the teaching, they are independent, they rightly proceed in the world, not coveting anything here. Uh, 
one who has passed over sensuality here, the snare in the world so hard to get past, grieves not nor hopes. They have cut the strings, they are no longer bound. What came before, let wither away, and after, let there be nothing. If you don't grasp at the middle, you will live at peace. One who has no sense of ownership in the whole realm of name and form does not grieve for that which is not, they suffer nor loss in the world. If you don't think of anything as belonging to yourself or others, not finding anything to be mine, you won't grieve, thinking, I don't have it. Not bitter, not fawning, unstirred everywhere even, when asked about one who is unshakable, I declare that is the benefit. For the unstirred who understand, there is no performance of deeds. Desisting from instigation, they see sanctuary everywhere. A sage doesn't speak of themselves as being among superior, inferiors or equals. Peaceful, rid of stinginess, they neither take nor reject. So there you are. That's the it's a long poem. And uh, there are a number of things there that could probably do with a bit of a commentary because it's uh, poetry is always a little bit... Uh, Unclear. One of the things about poetry is that often it has many meanings at the same time. And so we shouldn't be too concerned about kind of, uh, uh, you know, picking out one final meaning. Often it isn't like that. Often it has many meanings. And that is one of the beautiful things about poetry. So you can often interpret it in many different ways according to whatever inspires you or you feel kind of pulled towards. That is perfectly okay to do. There is a, a sutta in the, um, somewhere in the Anguttara Nikaya which talks about the seamstress. The seamstress is craving, which kind of sews the samsara together. Uh, and in that sutta, there's uh, all these monks coming together and they kind of give the interpretation of what this uh, verse means. Uh, and there's six different monks and each one has a separate interpretation. Uh, and then they go to the Buddha and they ask the Buddha, well, who is right? Uh, who, who got the interpretation correct? Uh, and the Buddha says, you're all right. Uh, and here is my interpretation, which is dif- different again. It's a seventh kind of interpretation. <clears throat> and that shows you that uh, with verse, it is often open-ended. It's not meant to be taken you know, one particular way necessarily. Uh, and you're allowed to use your imagination a bit and try to understand things in a way that uh, inspires you. Uh, then again... Uh, there are also wrong interpretations as well. There may not be one right one, but there certainly are many wrong ones. <laughs> and that's where you have to be careful, because then you can end up, if you are too freewheeling in your interpretation, you can actually get it wrong. Yeah? So it's good to be careful at the same time. All right. So we have just seen the danger in the world. yeah. And for that reason, uh, the Buddha says then, uh, whatever attachments there are in the world, uh, don't pursue them. Uh, the world often means the five sense world in the suttas. And that is, I think, the main thing here is the five sense world. And you can see that in the next sentence, having pierced through sensual pleasure in every way, you train yourself for quenching. So the main meaning here is the five sense world. It goes deeper than that, but that is the most difficult thing to get beyond. And that's why that's the main training is to go beyond that particular world. 
And uh, once you have done that, which is the hardest part, then you train yourself for quenching. Quenching is Nibbana. And uh, the, um, once you get to the state of Samadhi, then the rest of the path is fairly, relatively straightforward. Uh, the hardest part is to withdraw from the swamp of sensual pleasures uh, because it seems so attractive and it seems it's easy to get stuck there uh, especially if you have no higher vision of the world uh, if you have no meditation experience or whatever it's very easy to get stuck in those things uh. and then be truthful uh, not rude appagabbo uh, it's like rude or impudent or something like that uh, free of deceit uh, rid of slander uh, this idea of deceit, I think, is maya, I think, is a Pali word. Maya means like, um, like almost like magic, uh, yeah, free of magic, not kind of uh, deluding your teacher, uh, not pretending to be someone you are not, uh, but to be straightforward uh, is one of these things. Uh, and uh, especially for the monastics, if you pretend to be one thing when you're actually something else, uh, it is difficult for your teacher to kind of point out your flaws, uh, so you are just who you are, and that's fine. We can be who we are. We don't have to kind of be any better or pretend that we are something we are not. Uh, because uh, it just leads to tension if you try to do that. Uh, and it becomes very uncomfortable after a while. Uh, it also makes it harder for other people to, as I said, correct you and guide you in the right way. Uh, and also we're giving other people the freedom to also be themselves. Uh, if you are yourself and you accept yourself who you are with warts and all, as they say, with all the you know, negative qualities or whatever, uh, then o other people also will feel more free to be who they are. Uh, if we are honest about our defilements and honest about our uh, negative qualities, uh, that's often a, it's often a good thing, uh, instead of being proud about who we're supposed to be. Uh. Without anger, the sage would cross over the evils of greed and avarice. Uh, and these are often considered the two main kind of bad things in the world. Anger on the one hand and then desire or greed on the other. Uh, and there's a nice sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya 4s, the numerical discourses, uh, that talks about the four qualities of Dhamma, the th four things by which you can recognize real Dhamma teachings. Uh, and one of them is freedom from anger. The other one is freedom from desire. A third one is samasati, right mindfulness. And the fourth one is samasamadi, the jhanas and the deep states of uh, uh, meditation. So these are the four kind of uh, what are called ancient qualities of dhamma that always have been uh, how to define what is real dhamma or not. Prevail over sleepiness, sloth, and drowsiness. Uh, don't abide in negligence. Uh, prevail over these uh, things that cloud the mind. Uh, yeah, and uh, the, one of the things I always like to point out that the main way of overcoming sloth and tiredness, uh, actually, the main reason why they arise is because of the other first defilements, the anger and the desire. Desire makes the mind tired. Desire is agitated. Desire is restless. Desire means lots of activity for the mind. So by overcoming desire, you're conserving the energy of the mind. The more desire you have, the less energy you have in the mind. Anger is similar. Anger is, you have a lot of energy when the anger is there. But as soon as the anger is gone, you feel tired afterwards. It drains the mind of the good kind of energy. And the good energy of the mind comes from metta, kindness, uh, 
Yeah, friendliness comes from compassion for others. Uh, that's the good kind of energy. Yeah. And that's the kind of energy we really want to have on the path. Uh. So this is the main way of overcoming sleepiness and sloth and drowsiness, to build up those antidote qualities, uh, metta, karuna, uh, piti, uh, yeah, uh, all of these uh, beautiful meditation qualities. Uh, and they allow you then to get a clear and powerful mind, ready for samadhi and insight. Uh. Don't abide in negligence. Negligence is uh, pamada. Yeah, pamada, one of these root qualities on the Buddhist path, the root problems on the Buddhist path. Apamada, which is like um, diligence or heedfulness, is the opposite. And uh, so you, what that really means is that we are careful with our life. Uh, we are circumspect. Uh, we think before we act. Uh, we consider things properly. Uh, we don't do things hastily. Uh, and uh, it's so easy in the modern world to do things fast. Uh, it is so easy to always be kind of moved from one thing to the next one, always being occupied with things, uh, never really getting that overview of what is going on, uh, never taking a step back, uh, never getting the bird's eye view. Uh, and because we're always involved with things, uh, we're not able to judge properly what is appropriate and what is not. Uh, we become more negligent. Uh, so pulling back is great. Uh, and one of the advantages of coming on a retreat like this is that you're pulling it back a little bit from the world. Uh, yeah, not allowing yourself to be immersed in all of these uh, uh, addictions of the modern world, social media addiction. Uh, these are addictions. That's just the, you know, uh, sometimes we think about drug addiction as bad, but uh, I'm not sure if social media addiction is all that good either. Uh, so <laughs> there are all these things. Yeah, people, we are all addicted to something. It's kind of strange. We think of drug addicts as um, kind of terrible, but actually we're all addicted to things. Uh, they may not be as bad as drug addictions, uh, but they are still addictions. Uh, one of the obvious addictions is just in addiction to sensual pleasures. Uh, we all have that to some extent because we need happiness in life. Uh, yeah, and if you haven't got the higher happiness, you will be addicted to that. Uh, and if you don't have anything else, you have the social media addiction. Uh, so addiction is kind of part and parcel of life. Yeah. So... Um, so we always have to be on the outlook. So don't be negligent. Try to take a step back. See things more clearly. And then you are going to uh, prosper more as a consequence. Uh, a person intent on quenching would not stand for arrogance. Uh, yeah, so uh, the idea of arrogance is the idea of judging yourself uh, compared to other people. Uh, uh, it can mean, think, usually arrogance means that you think you are better. But uh, it can also, one aspect of conceit is also that you feel, think you are worse, right? That's a kind of conceit because you are trapped in a self-view. And as long as you have that self-view, it's a kind of, uh, that is called a kind of conceit in Buddhism. There's atimana and omana. And omana is like seeing yourself as low, atimana seeing yourself high, arrogant. And then there's also equality conceit in Buddhism. And this is kind of the kind of quintessential uh, Buddhist idea, like equality conceit. It sounds like an oxymoron. How can you have equality conceit? What are you talking about? And the reason you have equality conceit because the idea of equality means that you are seeing inherent qualities in a person. You're seeing a me that is there, a me that can be measured against other people. But if there is no me that can be measured, if there are just qualities that are always changing, going from one thing to another one, one moment you're upset, another moment you're full of loving kindness. Which one is the real you? Is it the angry one or is it the loving, the loving one? 
you can't say, right? It's you're both and none at the same time. It doesn't really make any sense. So how can you compare yourself to the other person? Huh? You can't really, huh? because there's nothing fixed by which you can measure yourself. And this is the idea of the equality conceit being wrong. Huh? We're not equal in that sense. You cannot compare the my this me compared to the Ajahnisarana me. Huh? These, are, <laughs> these are not comparable, right? Huh? Because they are always fluctuating, always different. Huh? And so you, after a while you give up this idea of conceit. You just see other people, they're just people. Uh, they're just a bundle of qualities moving along in the world, uh, ever-changing. Uh, yeah? <laughs> it's kind of a nice way of thinking about it. A bundle of qualities. Uh, and uh, that's what you are. So you don't have that conceit anymore. Uh. You don't be led into lying or get caught in fondness for form. Uh. Yeah, lying is so easy in the world. Uh. Often we lie because of... Uh, our sense of self just cannot stand. The, the, the reality, the truth is too painful for the sense of self. So we lie about things. Uh, don't get, fall for that trap uh, because uh, uh, that can, that's just part of the same kind of conceit, the same kind of arrogance really, uh, whereby you think of yourself as in a different way from the way you actually are. And then you have to lie about it. Uh, Caught up in fondness for form, yeah, we like the shapes in the world, uh, and when we get caught in those shapes, yeah, in whatever, uh, then we are in fondness for form. But form is always uh, changing, yeah, yeah, we are always changing. Our bodies are changing, yeah. We may be, may be kind of attractive when we're young, and then gradually gets worse and worse. Uh. <laughs> you know what these things are like: the body gradually falling apart. Uh. Completely understand conceit. Uh, and desist from hasty conduct. So that's conceit again. Uh, and then you have the idea of desisting from hasty conduct. And this is closely related to the idea of being circumspect and careful. Uh, it is very common for people to like that feeling of being spontaneous. Uh, because when you're spontaneous, you kind of living things out. You don't have to restrain. Restraint is a bit of a... Bit of a you know, maybe pain is too strong a word, but it's a little bit of that ho having to hold back yeah, can be can be experienced as a little bit painful. Uh, but when you just allow yourself to flow, whatever is going, uh, there's no resistance there, and that lack of resistance feels kind of natural and nice. Uh, but it leads to hasty conduct. Uh, and very often you make mistakes if you just allow yourself to go with the flow. Uh, because sometimes that flow is going to be good. It's going to come from good motivations, maybe most of the time even. But occasionally the motivation is going to be bad. Uh, occasionally you come from the wrong kind of uh, drivers inside of you. The ill will may be there, the desire may be there. Uh, and then as a consequence of that, the hasty conduct is going to lead in the wrong way. You're going to make bad karma and you're going to be walking backwards on the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, you're going to go backwards. You're going to go from, you know, the, the kind of anti-noble eightfold path. I'm not sure what. Can you go walk backwards? The wrong, maybe the wrong noble eightfold path or something. Yeah. So make sure you go forwards. Uh, always, there's going to be times when we take one step back, yeah, but take as few steps back as you possibly can because we need. There is no time to waste on this path. Uh. Don't relish the old or welcome the new. Don't think that the past was any better than the present. Very common for people to think about the past. Oh, things were so wonderful in the good, the good old days, right? It's, it's kind of a standard expression in English language, the good old days. Actually, usually it's the bad old days. Let's face it, uh, 
especially if you are on the spiritual path, the old days are usually worse than the present days. So much better to have bad old days. And what I recommend you to do, if you are going to take pictures that you're going to remember for the future, make sure you look really negative and sour and de depressed on those pictures. And then you have proof of the bad old days, right? And so usually on pictures, we like to smile. And then when you smile on the picture, you look back into the past. Like, oh, the good old days. Everyone was smiling and happy. And you're just fooling yourself. It's got nothing to do with reality whatsoever. So next time, look really depressed on the pictures. That is the path forward. So don't relish the old or welcome the new. Yeah, the new isn't all that interesting either. So new things, if you welcome the new, it just means that you are creating desire for what is coming up. And this is a bit similar to what you find in that famous Bad Eka Ratta Sutta. You know the Bad Eka Ratta Sutta? Yeah, anyone knows the Bad Eka Very well-known sutta found in the middle-length sayings of the Buddha, number 131, and 132, and 133 and 134. There's four versions of that sutta in the Majjhima And that's kind of extraordinary. Yeah? Yeah? It's all one after the other. Yeah? And that Padraka Sutta says that um, something like to the effect of uh, uh, don't hold on to the past. Uh, don't, uh, don't um, what is it? how does it go again? Don't have expectations for the future. Uh, yeah? But uh, he, right here in the present moment, see things as they arise in the present or something like that. Uh, yeah, so the idea is to be present, uh, to be mindful. Uh, if you hang out in the past or hang out in the future, you're not going to be able to be in the present. Uh, and when you are in the present, uh, then you can react uh, to the present in a good way. Uh, then you can decide, then you can be circumspect, then you can actually deal with things as they are now. Uh, but if you're hanging out in the past and the future, you can't really be aware of what's happening now. Uh, and so you can't really restrain yourself, you can't do what is right, uh, because you're already, your mind is all over the place. Uh, so forget about the past. The past is probably worse than the present. The future is not interesting. What is interesting is the now, because now is when you create the future. If you create the future well now, if you do the right thing now, then the future is going to be good. The future is not going to be good by thinking about it. Don't grieve for what is running out. Or get attached to things that pull you in. Yeah, allow things to run out. Allow the past to be. Okay, good riddance. Uh, get rid of it. Uh, and then new things, not, nothing new is all that interesting. Yeah. And you kind of go on to the uh, spiritual qualities instead. Uh, greed, I say, is the great flood. The longing is the current. Uh, yeah. Greed is the great flood. If you look into your heart, if you look into the things that drive you on in the world... Uh, Craving and desire is always there, always present. Uh, that's why you dream at night. Uh, that is why. So it never really goes out. You dream at night because the craving somehow carries on a little bit. Uh, and during the day, you are compelled to move forward, to go here, to go there, to do various things. Uh, it's a flood that never stops, driving you on and on and on. Uh, this mountain current, uh, as it is called in the suttas in certain places. Uh, and longing is the current. You're longing for something. You don't really know what it is. You're longing for contentment, satisfaction, all of these things. Uh, it is so hard to find. Uh, the base is the compulsion, the swamp of sensuality, so hard to get past. Uh, 
we're in this swamp and when you're in the swamp you are sinking down you are knee deep in water and swampy mud all around you. it's really hard to walk wow and this swamp is endless in all directions how are you going to get out of it and so you have to kind of uh, uh, try to pull yourself out of this swamp of sensuality this is in many ways the most difficult thing to overcome and really this is why it is such a wonderful thing that people do a bit of meditation practice because this is where you start to see the exit from that swamp yeah, when your mind becomes peaceful when things calm down and if your mind has never been all that peaceful well just carry on gently practice all the factors of the path and eventually it will start to come together so the swamp of sensuality is kind of it gives you an idea how difficult that this is. Uh, I don't think the um, self-view is never, never really called a swamp, uh, but sensuality is. Uh, the sage never strays from the truth. Uh, the Brahman stands firm on the shore. Uh, having given up everything, they are said to be at peace. So now we are moving from the path onto the results of the path. Uh, and now we're talking about the arahant. This is the sage. Yeah, the sage is always truthful. Uh, the Brahman. The Brahman here is just another word for the arahant. Uh, remember the Buddha, he takes the vocabulary existing in ancient India, the Brahmana. These are the Brahmin caste, the highest caste in ancient India. Uh, and they always consider themselves better than everyone else, right? Because they were Brahmins. Uh, and they were born of Brahma's mouth. Uh, and everyone else... Um, and the, and the ascetics, like the Buddhist ascetics, you know what they were born from? They were born from Brahma's feet. Yeah? The dirtiest part of the body, the feet, when you walk on the ground. So Buddhist monks, they are the scum, according to the Brahmins. We are the worst. <laughs> because they were elevating themselves, right? But one of the interesting things, of course, is that many of the Brahmins of ancient India, they became ascetics, they became Buddhist monks, right? The largest contingent of Buddhist monks probably were actually from the Brahmanical caste. And then the Kshatriyas, the Katya caste, was number two. So they re recognized there was something in these uh, ascetic circles, even though the, the, the kind of the rhetoric, yeah, the way they talked about them was putting it down. Uh, but the reality deep inside, they knew there was something about this that was very powerful. Uh, that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, that's often how we are as human beings. Uh, we are kind of divided in a certain way. Uh. So the Buddha used the idea of Brahman and he, or Brahmins, uh, and he changed the meaning from being the caste to being someone who is noble at heart, not noble because of social conventions, but noble at heart through their practice. The Arahant, that's the true Brahmin in the world. And they stands firmly on the shore, whereas the rest of us are quaking and quivering and, uh, um, and restless and always agitated. The world is always shaking under our feet. There's nowhere we can stand whenever we take a hold. And we have to take a hold somewhere. We have to attach somewhere why because our sense of self compels us to attach to things in the world but whenever we attach the ground starts to shake and we fall over and we hurt ourselves because of that attachment and then the only person who does not shake anymore the only person who for whom there's no problem is the person who doesn't attach and that is the brahmin that is why they stand firm on the shore because they no longer feel the quaking of the ground the impermanence of the world always undermining your attachments the only way is to overcome attachments then the impermanence has no sway over you anymore you are free of that problem once and for all
Having given up everything, they are said to be at peace. Given up everything means giving up all attachments. Nothing holding on, no sense of ownership. You own nothing in the world. That's when you're happy. Isn't that kind of interesting? It's such a different way of thinking about life. Yeah, the idea when you own nothing, that is when you're happy. When you own nothing, that's when you are at peace. When you have nothing in the world, that is when you have reached the highest freedom from suffering. It's so contrary to everything anyone does in this world. Everyone wants to amass things. Everyone wants to build up a fortune and relationships and houses and all kinds of things. The Buddha says you're going about it completely the wrong way. And this is why we have these kind of nice sayings in the suttas uh, that uh, what the Aryas say is happiness. The ordinary people think is suffering. Uh, and what the ordinary people think is happiness, uh, the Aryas say is suffering. Uh, it is a reversal of the reality. Uh, and what about all of us here? Where are we? Are we on the noble side or are we on the ordinary people's side? Uh, and we're kind of somewhere in between, right? We're trying to move in the right direction. We have some inkling that something isn't quite right in the world. And that is why we are here. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. But we haven't quite got yet to the other shore. We're not yet standing on firm ground. But we have an idea that firm ground is in sight somewhere far away. And we're trying to head in that direction. So it's, this is why the Dhamma is so fascinating here. We know that most people in the world don't really find happiness. Uh, when you look around at most people in the world, you realize almost everyone in the world is suffering in one way or another. Uh, and you start, that is what gives, one of the things that gives rise to the willingness to try something which is really a bit more radical, uh, something which looks at things in a very different way. Uh, because if we're going to find a solution to the problems in life, we realize uh, we're going to have to look in a very different place uh, from where almost everyone else is looking. Uh, because obviously it isn't working out. Uh. And so we approach things in this way. We start to give up a little bit. Uh, we renounce a little bit. The first renunciation is to keep the five precepts. Uh, and then gradually, gradually we learn more about this, moving in the right direction until we are utterly ownerless. Uh. They have truly known, they are a knowledge master, huh? understanding the teaching, they are independent. Huh? They rightly proceed in the world, not coveting anything here. They are a knowledge master, the Vedagu. Uh, this is a word used by the Brahmins to mean that you are, have knowledge of the Vedas. The Vedas are the scriptures of the Brahmins. Uh, and the Buddha takes that word and makes it into a Buddhist word. Uh, and for the Buddha, the, the uh, Vedagu, knowledge master, has nothing to do with scriptures. Uh, it has everything to do with insight. Uh, so the Vedagu is someone who has understood the three knowledge, the Tevija, someone who has seen their past life, uh, someone who has understood the Kama, and someone who is an Arahant. That is the real knowledge master. Uh, you don't have to know more than one verse of the entire Pali Canon, uh, and you can still be a knowledge master. Uh. That beautiful sutta somewhere, I think in the Anguttara Nikaya probably, which was someone asked, how much do I need to learn? How much should I kind of learn? And the Buddha says, it's enough to learn one four-line verse. If you know one four-line verse and you understand it fully, that means being an arahant, then you know everything you need to know. You don't really need to know all that much. I think I need to know a bit less. How can I 
I can give up a few of this, all this. I've read so many, too many suttas, but that's why I'm not getting anywhere on this path. I need to read, kind of <laughs> read less suttas. But I, I don't think it is wrong to read many suttas. Uh, but the more important is how deeply you understand them. Uh, yeah, that is really the issue here. Uh, real deep understanding is what matters. That is what knowledge is about. Uh, knowledge is not about being able to quote as many suttas as possible. Uh, Understanding the teaching, they are independent. Yeah, you are independent in the world. It's such a beautiful idea because uh, when we are dependent on the world around us, uh, we are also very vulnerable uh, because other people can control us, the society can control us. Uh, and even if no one is actually controlling us, we're still controlled by our own defilements. Uh, and that is a very painful place to be here. Uh, but to be independent means that you can you don't have to follow the world anymore. You can make independent decisions. You can always make the best decisions uh, for whatever is required at one particular time. And this is kind of great, yeah, to be independent in this way. One of the underestimated qualities of the Buddhist path. Uh. They rightly proceed in the world. Because you are independent, you proceed rightly. You just do whatever is right. You don't care what anything else, anyone else thinks. Uh not coveting anything here. One who has crossed over sensuality here, the snare in the world, so hard to pass, get past. It's like a swamp, yeah? The swamp is hard to get out of. The snare is what kind of, a snare is like a trap that kind of holds you around your foot. Yeah, it's like a snare for animals that they use to trap animals to, uh, for, for hunters. Uh, in the same way, you are trapped by that snare. The hunter is Mara. Mara gets that snare around your feet and you are trapped as a consequence. Uh, again, hard to get past. Uh, you grieve not. Yeah, there's nothing in the world that makes you grieve. You're not sorrowing over anything because the past is just gone. You're in the present, nor do you have any hopes for the future. Uh, you're just present here and now. And even in the here and now, the strings are cut. You are no longer bound. You're free right here in the present moment uh, with mindfulness established, moving along in the world, uh, free and liberated. Uh, what came before, let wither away, and after, let there be nothing. Uh, the past is gone, the future, let there be nothing. Uh, that's this kind of um, profound statement, let there be nothing, uh, akinshana. The idea that, uh, first of all, let there be nothing because you're not interested in the future. The future doesn't really matter to you anymore. Uh, you're just here in the present. Uh, but also the idea that uh, looking forward to the ending of everything. Yeah, let there be nothing. Nothing is such a beautiful idea in Buddhism. Uh, it's so hard to grasp for most people. Uh, but if you listen to a great teacher like Ajahn Brahm, he will tell you that nothing uh, is one of the most beautiful, maybe the most beautiful idea of all. Uh, absolutely nothing. Uh, that is what this path is leading to. Uh, and when you are kind of understand that, uh, it can, becomes very inspiring and profound. Uh. But to be able to do that, you shouldn't grasp at the middle uh, and you will live at peace. Uh. One who has no sense of ownership in the whole realm of name and form. Uh. Name and form, this is uh, everything in the world. Uh. Yeah, form is the shape of things. Name is how we recognize things in the world. Uh. And so this is how we recognize anything in the world. Uh, and your entire mental con content, the entire world can be classified according to name and form. Uh, so if you have no ownership in the, in the realm of name and form, uh, it means that you don't own anything whatsoever, uh, including your own body and your own mind. Uh, 
Everything has been given up. This is the profundity of no ownership. Even your mind is kind of not, it's there, it's still existing, but you don't hold on to it. It is no longer considered it yours, which is kind of strange, isn't it? Does not grieve for that which is not. They suffer no loss in the world. How can you suffer loss when you have no ownership? You never lose, and that's why you can never grieve. If you don't think of anything as belonging to yourself or others, not finding anything to be mine, you won't grieve thinking, I don't have it. In fact, you will be happy that you don't have it. Not bitter, not fawning, unstirred everywhere even. In other words, never having your, never kind of being involved in anything. If you're not bitter and fawning, it means you're not involved with anything. You're not trying to get anything out of the world. You are unstirred. You are anenja. The mind is stable and always able to uh, deal with everything in life. When asked about one who is unshakable, I declare that is the benefit. You are unstirred. That is the benefit of being unshakable. For the unstirred who understand, uh, there is no performance of deeds. Why is there no performance of deeds? Because deeds in Buddhism is the kamma that we produce to uh, give rise to results in the future. Uh, but if you have come to the end of the path, you are no longer producing kamma. You're still acting in the world, but your actions are free of results. Uh, they're called kriya kamma. I think this is from the Abhidhamma. It's rare that I quote the Abhidhamma, but there you are on a rare occasion. <laughs> so the Kiryakama is just kind of actions without results. Yeah? So we're still living in the world, but no longer creating anything that uh, propels us into the future. Desisting from instigation, they see sanctuary everywhere. You don't instigate anything in the sense of... Uh, uh, having a desire or moving towards anything. Uh, there's nothing to be instigated. You just act because we need to act. You need to eat. You need to breathe. You need to do certain things. And you do those. Uh, but not because you're looking for any results for yourself. Uh, the Arahant doesn't look for results in the future. Uh, the Arahant just does what is required in the present to live and to survive. Uh, and because of that, this is the weird thing. That is why you see sanctuary everywhere. Uh, because you have no vested interest in the world. You don't want to get anything out of the world. You don't instigate anything to get anywhere. And because you don't have any desire to get anywhere, you are free everywhere. Everywhere you are is like a sanctuary because you are mentally liberated from all of these things. Not seeking anything. You can never be disappointed. Yeah, Ajahn Brahma always talks about lowering your expectations. And this is the Arahant. Arahant has no expectations at all. That is why the Arahant is happy. So be like the Arahant. Have no expectations for the future. Then you will have sanctuary everywhere. It's a hard thing to do, right? Not to have expectations. In fact, it is impossible. If you have a sense of self, you will have expectations because it comes with the terrain. It comes with the territory of having a sense of self. But at least you can lower it a little bit. You can reduce it. And by doing that, you're reducing your sense of self at the same time. And it's nice to reduce your ego. The ego is such a painful thing. It's so vulnerable. If someone says something bad to you, you are a bad person. You get angry. Why do you get angry? Because your ego doesn't like to be told you're bad. The sense of self is such a burden and nuisance in life. 
The sage doesn't speak of themselves as being among superiors, inferiors, or equals. Yeah, again, there is no comparison between people. There's nothing really by which we can compare each other. Peaceful, rid of stinginess, always giving, always being there, living for the benefit of the world. The Arahant, the Buddha, has no purpose in life apart from living for the benefit of others. It's a beautiful idea. And this is one of the ways you can judge whether someone is truly advanced in the practice is how generous they are. If someone is stingy, it is a sign that they're not really gone very far on the path. They neither take nor reject. They pick nothing up in the world. They're no longer interested in taking or picking things up. There's no upadana. Upadana is one of the factors of dependent origination. That factor has been overcome. Nor do they reject because they've already given everything up. They have no ownership, so there's nothing more to be rejected. So you're just even in the world, moving around, not comparing yourself to everyone, never taking anything up, nor rejecting anything, because you have already reached the end of the path. Anyway, so um, there you are. So that is that um, beautiful little sutta, the Atta Danda Sutta. And uh, all of these things, just, uh, just to kind of give you a feeling for the whole sutta, even though I'm here, really want to talk about right view, I thought it is, it is kind of nice. Yeah, I, I don't know, there's something very beautiful about this. Uh, and so it is still inspiring. And it's still, everything is within the realm of right view anyway. So... I'm going to move on to the next sutta. And uh, this is a strange sutta. And I have, it's not a sutta that I normally read out on a retreat. And uh, this is probably the last time you hear about the sutta on any retreat. You come in the future. So open your ears because this might be the only opportunity you have to hear this sutta. <laughs> and it is a strange one because it is, it is called the Mahasupina Sutta. Mahasupina Supina is dream. Maha is great. The great dreams of the Buddha. And... Um, the strange thing about it is that the Buddha here talks about the five dreams that he had before his awakening. And these were dreams that were kind of prophetic. Prophetic in the sense that they showed him that he would be reaching some kind of amazing insight and awakening experience. And uh, I thought this interesting. We're looking at right view. We're looking at kind of the, the Buddha before his awakening and how he... Uh, you know, how, what he did yeah, to kind of move forward to awakening. And it's strange that the Buddha talks about dreams because in the present world, uh, we don't take dreams very seriously. Uh, yeah, you dream some random stuff at night. And of course, most dreams don't really deserve to be taken seriously because they are so weird very often. There's kind of strange things that happen in a dream, never happen in real life. And sometimes you wonder where those dreams come from, uh, and I sometimes, I don't know, I think many things in our dreams probably come from past lives. Where else does it come from? Nothing in some of those dreams that I've had have no relationship at all to anything I experienced in this life. Must be some past life thing. Or maybe you are tapping into some greater reality beyond yourself. I don't know. But there's something there which is very interesting about dreams. 
And so at the time of the Buddha, they obviously took these things quite seriously. Otherwise, the Buddha wouldn't talk about his dreams after his enlightenment, after his awakening. Yeah. And if the Buddha takes them seriously, uh, well, then maybe there's something to this. Uh. And so this is this idea that the kind of our contemporary view of the world is often so impoverished and so limited. Uh. Very commonly in the present world, we think about the world as just physical matter, uh, as material phenomena. The mind is somehow a byproduct of the material world. Uh, and it is completely counter to how Buddhism thinks about the world. Uh. In Buddhism, the primary thing is always the mind. The mind comes first. Uh, and then the material phenomena somehow emerge or are a secondary aspect of the world. But the mind is always primary. Uh. And you see that in certain suttas, like the Rohitasa Sutta and the Anguttara Nikaya 4, 44 or 45, something like that, uh, where the Buddha says that the world is found in this fathom-long body with its consciousness. The end of the world is in this fathom-long body with its consciousness. Yeah, the origin of the world, everything is there. The path leading to the end of the world is also in this fathom-long body with its consciousness. So in other words, the world is your experience right now. That is your world. That is the only world that really exists. Yeah, apart from other people who have their own world. But there is no kind of neutral world apart from our inner world. That is the real world that matters. That is where dukkha is experienced. That is where impermanence is experienced. That is where the sense of self resides and all of these kind of things. That is what matters. And this is why, because if, the, if we see the mind as kind of primer in the world, then of course dreams become interesting. Yeah? Because dreams are part of the mental realm. Uh, and they're part of this kind of uh, connection. Uh, yeah, If the mind is the most important thing, well maybe there is connections between people uh, that are beyond the ordinary. Uh. Maybe things like you know, understanding other people's minds is possible. Uh. Maybe we can connect on a deeper level like that. Uh. And dreams too become interesting. Uh. Maybe there are prophetic dreams. Uh. There are people in the world today who investigate these things and there is some evidence that it is possible to dream about the future uh, and to get it right. Uh. So uh, this is why I find this so interesting because it kind of opens up the, the door to a different kind of worldview. Uh. The Buddha is, thinks about the world differently from how we think about the world these days. Uh. And that is one reason we should be open to the Buddha's message. Uh. We should listen carefully uh, because we need to understand that sometimes uh, our own worldview is sometimes limited, impoverished, yeah, and doesn't really have the depth and profundity of how the Buddha presented these things. So let's have a quick look. I'm not going to spend much time on this because it's, I don't think it's really necessary, but a quick look at the sutta, just to see what the Buddha has to say about this. Mendicant, before his awakening, five dreams appeared to the realized one, the perfected one, the fully awakened Buddha, when he was still not awake but intent on awakening. So we're talking about the Bodhisatta, the one intent on awakening. What five? This great earth was his bed. Himalaya, the king of mountains, was his pillow. His left hand was laid down in the eastern sea. His right hand was laid down in the western sea. And both his feet were laid down in the southern sea. This is the first great dream that appeared to the realized one before his awakening. Next, a kind of grass called the crosser grew up from his navel and stood pressing against the cloudy sky. 
This is the second great dream, etc. Next, white caterpillars with black heads crawled up from his feet and covered his knees. This is the third great dream. Next, four birds of different colors came from the four quarters. They fell at his feet, turning pure white. This is the fourth great dream. Next, he walked back and forth on top of a huge mountain of filth while remaining unsoiled. This is the fifth great dream. So let's uh, come at the, to the interpretation of these dreams. So we just move straight on to the, uh, uh, the interpretations here. Now as to when, before his awakening, uh, the realized one, the perfected one, the fully awakened Buddha was still not awake but intent on awakening, uh, this great earth was his bed. Himalaya, king of the mountains, was his pillow, his left hand in the eastern sea, the right hand in the western sea, his feet in the southern sea. This was fulfilled when the Buddha awakened to the perfect awakening. So this was a sign that the Buddha was going to become fully awakened, that he was using the great earth as his bed. So it's kind of interesting, using the great earth as his bed. There's this idea here that you have kind of overcome the whole world, right? The world is just your resting place now. You're just chilling in that world. You're no longer tense. You have come to the end of things. And you somehow kind of envelop that earth with your body. It's like the world has become yours in a certain way. You have gone above it, beyond it. And even Himalaya, the king of your mountains, is your pillow. You know, the Himalayas were often considered like the center of the world uh, because of the might of these great mountains. Uh, and when you use them as your pillow, pillow is as if you have transcended the world, gone beyond the world, uh, using the very center of the world as your resting place. Uh, so there's a sense of uh, having gone beyond the world here. Uh, your hands resting in the oceans, etc. Again, it's like you, your whole world is within your grasp, yeah? And your kind of your limbs extending beyond that. Uh, there's a sense of the Buddha having, uh, having realized something profound, uh, gone beyond the ordinary world. Uh. So then we have the second dream uh, as to when a kind of grass called the Crosser grew up from his navel and stood pressing against the cloudy sky. This was fulfilled when after the Buddha had wakened to the Noble Eightfold Path, it was proclaimed wherever there are gods and humans. So um, the idea of navel, the navel apparently in Indian mythology has to do with rebirth. Yeah, for kind of fairly obvious reasons, I suppose. So the navel has to do with the rebirth, but navel also has to do some, uh, apparently also with being the center of the world. Uh, yeah? So the idea of the path of Buddhism, being at the center of the world, uh, being that which really matters in the world, the thing that really opens up the world in a new way. Uh, and I think in that sense it is the center, it is the most important thing that happens in humanity, is the availability of the Noble Eightfold Path, because it's that which allows you to move away from all the problems of life. Uh, so in that sense it is like the center, the most significant aspect uh, uh, of human society, if you like. Yeah. And it grows out of the navel, it grows out of the center, yeah, the thing which is the most important thing. Yeah. And it grows to the, it is, it is like a path. Uh, 
And uh, usually in the Hindu mythology, that path then leads to heaven. Yeah, it kind of grows out of the navel, leads to the Brahma world. Uh, but of course here it leads to Nibbana instead. Uh, so it's no longer about rebirth as such, but it's about transcending the whole idea of rebirth. Uh, so uh, it is kind of a, it's very, it's, it's quite symbolic and it's not kind of very obvious perhaps to us what it means uh, but once you understand that it is the path in ancient Hindu mythology it starts to make sense uh, and it goes up to the devas here the cloudy skies maybe the devas are also included on this path and then maybe it carries on beyond that uh, all the way to Nibbana itself and uh, the interesting name here the grass called the crosser yeah the uh, Tiria is the name of this grass, and Tiria means across. So it's the kind of the grass that takes you across. Yeah, it's kind of an indication of what the what the meaning of this is. Then you have the white caterpillars with black heads, and of course they are white because they are lay disciples. Yeah, this was fulfilled when many white-clothed lay disciples went to refuge for him. All these people clad in white, and white, of course, is always a sign of purity. And so they all become uh, uh, disciples of the Buddha. They crawl up from the feet and covering his knees. Uh, and of course the idea here is that uh, the feet, you start out low. You start at the dirtiest place. Uh, and then you move upwards on the body to a more pure place. The knees are like maybe the pure place. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know if they should have crawled even higher, but maybe that's good to, maybe the knees is kind of an, a suitable place to stop perhaps. Uh, I'm not sure else. Otherwise, where would you stop? <laughs> it might be, if, imagine if you walk all the way up to the head of the Buddha, it might seem a bit uh, kind of uh, a bit, bit dodgy. Maybe you shouldn't do that. So maybe that's why this stops at the knees. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so you're clad in white. Yeah, it's kind of beautiful, the idea of dressing in white. Um, sometimes when you travel to Buddhist countries, uh, and you kind of give a talk somewhere, and sometimes very large crowds come to these talks, maybe hundreds of thousands of people, and it's just a sea of white around you. I remember giving a talk at the BMC, what is it called, BMICH in Colombo, and there may be 2,000 seats in that hall there. Everyone is wearing white in that hall, everyone, except for me, I'm the only one who doesn't wear white. <laughs> And it's actually very attractive. Yeah, it's very beautiful. And everyone is a silent. Everyone is doing meditation together. Everyone is listening to Dhamma, contemplating these teachings. And it's kind of very touching when you see that. There's a feeling of Dhamma being practiced, a sense of purity about it. It's only symbolic, of course, but symbolism sometimes matters. As to when the four birds of different colors came from the four quarters, they fell at his feet, turning pure white. This was fulfilled when the members of the four castes, aristocrats, brahmins, merchants and workers, went forth from the home life to homelessness in the teaching proclaimed by the realized one, and they realized supreme freedom. So... You have the four castes, yeah, these are the four main uh, social strata of ancient India. And uh, they all go forth and they, they have, you know, when they come to the Buddha, they have uh, different colors, right? They are different, they belong to different parts of society. There is discrimination going on. Some people feel superior, some people feel inferior. So they are kind of colored in different ways. But when they come to the Buddha, they all become pure white, 
In other words, they all become the same. That's the first importance of this. That discrimination, that differentiation between the caste, that stops once you enter the Sangha. But not only do they become the same, but they become same in a very beautiful way. They become pure white. This is the idea of realizing freedom, as it says here. Yeah, They realize the supreme freedom. And so you become white and giving up this discrimination that happens in society as such as it was in ancient India, and as you find in every society in the world, every society is stratified, uh, every society has different layers. Uh, it's impossible, society, there seems to be kind of the rule of, uh, of the universe that we'd like to stratify, we'd like to feel better, yeah, we are, the ego wants to kind of elevate ourselves over other people, uh, or if you feel inferiority complex, you're happy to be at the bottom of the pile or whatever it is, uh, but this is kind of how we work as human beings, it is the natural consequence of the sense of self. Uh, so then the idea is to overcome that sense of self, part of that is overcoming this kind of status uh, that society imposes upon us. Uh, As to when he walked back and forth on top of a huge mountain of filth while remaining unsoiled, uh, this was fulfilled when the realized one received robes, arms, food, lodgings, and medicines and supplies for the sick, uh, and he used them untied, uninfatuated, unattached, seeing the drawback, uh, and understanding the escape. This was a fifth dream that appeared to him while he was still not awakened. So, um, the, uh, the Buddha and any monk or nun who uses the requisites in the right way, uh, they don't, not attached to those requisites. Uh, yes, you have to use them because you have to live, you have to survive somehow. Uh, but actually, if you, when you turn your mind to them, you realize that all of these things they are necessary, uh, but they really belong to the lower aspects of the world. Uh, yeah, the higher aspects of the world is the samadhi and the awakening experience. That is what is really high, leaving all of these things behind. So use these things because they are necessary. And of course, you have lots of gratitude when people support you with these things. And you see the beauty of the Dhamma, where we support each other back and forth in this way. It's a wonderful thing. But at the same time, you realize the danger in these things. And you understand you're also able to turn your mind, seeing these things as filth. Yeah. It's kind of strong, right? Uh, and uh, so you, the, the point of the Arahant, the Arahant has a very flexible perception. Uh, you can turn your perception one moment to see these things as dung, as filth, as something negative, as something not to be held on to. Uh, and the next moment you can have the most profound gratitude of all for people who support you. Uh, this is the power of the Arahant, this ability to shift your perception, seeing what is beautiful as not beautiful, uh, seeing what is not beautiful as beautiful. Uh, if you want to read about this, check out the uh, Indriya Bhavana Sutta, Majjhimanaka 152. It talks about this kind of superpower. Uh, so you stay aloof from the world. Uh, you don't allow yourself to be drawn in, to become attached to fame, like, attached to requisites, attached to honor and all of these things. Uh, the Buddha says all of these things are filthy pleasures. Uh, that is not the purpose uh, of this life. Uh, and for me, the example of this is always Ajahn Brahm. Yeah, I sit next to Ajahn Brahm. I sit, well, not quite, sometimes next to him. Uh, and I've been very, you know, been with him for almost 30 years. Uh, and I've been quite astonished at his ability to 
brush everything off. Uh, yeah, Adam Brown, you know, when you sit next to him, there's no feeling of ego there, no sense of self. Uh, even though he's the most, one of the most famous monks in the whole world, uh, even though he has all these disciples everywhere kind of you know, coming to him and listening to him and all these kind of things, uh, you don't feel that at all when you're with him. He feels like the most ordinary person in the world. He kind of disappears into the woodwork sometimes, as if he almost isn't there. Yeah, That's kind of Ajahn Brahm for you. And you, it's hard maybe to see that when you only see him on public occasions. But when you see him in private, you see that he... He probably doesn't even want to be there with you, right? Sometimes I get this feeling, I'm there with Ajahn Brahm. I get the feeling, actually, he'd rather not see me at all. Yeah? He'd rather I just left, and kind of left him alone. And that's actually a beautiful thing. Yeah? It's actually a wonderful thing because it means that he's always leaning towards solitude, always leaning towards samadhi, yeah? always leaning towards the higher aspects of the path instead of hanging out with his mates. <laughs> He doesn't want to hang out with them. He doesn't have any mates in that sense. He's gone beyond that kind of mateship. And Australia is the country of mateship. Is that what they say? Mateship is kind of the Australian thing. So Ajahn Brahm is anti-Australian. <laughs> Don't tell that to the authorities. That's kind of that secret that's between all of us here. But that is probably the, uh, the, the reality. So... Before his awakening, these five dreams appear to the realized one, the perfect one, the fully awakened Buddha, when he was still not awake, but intent on awakening him. So there you are, the five dreams. So please forgive me for indulging a bit in a kind of random suttas. But there you are. Just a, it's actually quite interesting once you get into it. But it is a bit kind of unusual. So... There you are. That is all for now. So please keep on enjoying yourself. Uh, and there will be some more interviews at uh, 4 o'clock uh, for those of you who are coming for that. Uh, and then we will have a Q&A session this evening at 6.30. So we'll see you back again then.